Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper, and remember I'm only as hip as my guests. And I have to tell you people, I uh, it's funny, my, my whole schedule got thrown off today because cancellations and different stuff. So I was leaving the house, and before I left, the lovely Joanne kept saying, make sure you eat. And I'm like, I don't have time to eat in the studio because I have three interviews, and there's like 10 minutes in between each interview. She's like, make sure you take one of these granola bars. So she... I said, okay. And she knew I didn't take it. So she actually went and grabbed two and said, take one of them. I took it. And you know what? It's still in my bag. Because she doesn't understand I have no time to eat. But it was nice of her to think of me. So anyway, we have a, we have a great show today. We have a, another another music guy, a, a very successful drummer. We have a Jason Sutter. How you doing, Jason? I'm great. How you doing? Good, good. I'm, I'm, I, so you're from back east. Yeah, I'm from New York, upstate New York. Okay. Now, uh... I heard, I was reading about you, you started playing drums, you got into drums at a pretty young age, right? Yeah, very, very little. Now, what made you, what made you fascinated with them? Is there anything that you... Um, I, I always liked music and I liked drums. I think I, my parents, you know, I played, I, I, I was, you know, my parents are professors at a college in, in Potsdam, New York, where I'm from, which is really close to the Canadian border, really high up in New York. Um, my dad's a sculptor and his dad was the chief of police of Milwaukee Okay. in the fifties and sixties. So he, you know, it was very hard for him. He, he wanted to be a, an artist and his dad was very, you know, but once he got a scholarship, it was like, okay, I guess you're going to be an artist. Artist, even though he had to go to the police academy anyway, just to at least fulfill that part of the family tradition. But anyway, my dad always, you know, wanted to be a musician and wanted to be a drummer and liked to go play and, uh, you know, mess around, you know, bongos or whatever. And his dad, you know, that was never an option. So when I stressed interest at a young age, my dad really was supportive and really into it. And so I was lucky enough at the college that my dad was a professor at. There was a there's a music school called Crane School of Music, which is a really great music school, and um, basically the professor there was a friend of my father's who who is a great drum instructor and an art collector. So he liked my father's work, and my dad said, "Hey, I'd like to get lessons from my kid. What would we, you know, what would that cost?" And he said, "Well, why don't you just give me a painting and we can work it out?" So my dad actually gave him it was actually a drawing, a big drawing that my dad did at the time that he was very successful with, and so that basically paid for my drum lessons. And the teacher was a guy named Jim Pierzak, who ended up later becoming renowned like in the Weckl craze, Dave Weckl and jazz guys. Um, he taught Dave Weckl when he was a little kid too and ended up teaching like Vinnie Kaliuta when Vinnie wanted to revamp his technique. So I was very fortunate at like probably eight you know, seven or eight to be studying with like this master, who, you know. Now, what do, what do they teach you? It's like at that age, because you're so young and you're so impressionable. I mean, it's like anything. We just sit there, you know, and, you, and it's hard. It's hard for us to have discipline. I, I just think for like me, I, I was running around everywhere. But for an eight-year-old and he, he's taught other kids, so he knows what he's doing. Yeah. What does he teach you? Like as a drummer, what does he teach you? Well, I was eight, but you know, this was a college and, and I was surrounded by college kids. So there was a certain, you know, it was pretty serious. You know what I mean? It wasn't just like a little, I was, you know, I, this was real business. Of course, I was never probably as prepared as I should have been, but it was basically rudiments and, you know, how to hold a stick correctly, which in the beginning is very important. So there was a lot of... um very proper technique in the beginning, which is so important. And I just, you know, kind of took it for granted, but luckily it sunk in. So that was kind of more along those lines. And, you know, basically playing beats, getting a good sound out of the instrument and and playing with good time, you know, and, and just, you know, big life lessons that, you know, I was getting, you know, on a very professional level at a very early early age and early stage of my career where a lot of guys maybe go through a couple of teachers or whatever. I was literally getting like the best at the very beginning. So I was pretty fortunate. And at that same time, I was playing in a cover band with like a bunch of- At eight? At nine. Okay. Okay. Now, now how old were the other people? They were maybe like 11 or 12 because they're, it was basically all our parents were professors. Okay. And we were actually rehearsing at the president of the college's son's house who played keyboards. And so we would literally set up and the house was so big, you know, it was presidential. Right. House. So it's so big that they had all these wings. So we would literally come in on like a Thursday or a Friday, you know, afternoon after school set up and then not tear down till like Sunday night. So we would literally like be immersed. We'd stay over at his house. It was one big giant rock and roll sleepover at like nine and 10 and 11. And we would like steal beers from his like parents' <laughs> liquor cabinet because that would always be stocked. So he could blame his older brothers. So we could go like steal beers from their liquor cabinet and the next week it would be full so nobody would know so at, at a little at a young age we were like living out the like stones and you know we were gonna smoke cigarettes and drink beers in between you know at night after a long hard day of rehearsing but but we were recording and we were actually playing gigs for like local municipal buildings at a young age yeah and so what, what kind of music were you playing we were playing stones we were playing the beatles we were playing uh bands we could play 
you know, maybe there was like a Ozzy Osbourne tune and, um, but you know, rock, mostly blues oriented, you know, like ZZ top stuff that we could play where there were other bands that were, believe it or not, our age too, our competition, but they were trying to play like Judas Priest or Journey and failing miserably. We were playing blues based music, which with a little bit of edge played by kids who can, you know, kind of, you know, a little raw, it actually kind of worked. So we actually worked quite a bit. We worked like our parents would have to drive us to the gigs, obviously, you know, but we, and we had roadies and we had paychecks and we had groupies. At like 11 and 12. Yeah. And now were your group, were your groupies like the your group, age or yeah. were they older? Well, I mean, in some cases they were older and sometimes, you know, <laughs> cases we play like a city, like maybe, and it was a small little rural town I was in. So maybe we play a city like six miles away and that'd be a whole nother group of chicks, you know? That's amazing. It was incredible. I you mean, know? you think about it, it's just so funny. It, it really gives you the, I mean, most people, you know, aren't even thinking about, you know, getting kissed and you're actually, you're, I mean, you know, you're playing and at this young age and it's just, it's amazing. Cause you know, even when I talk to actors and different people, you know, no one's doing that stuff at that young. I mean, they may play here and there, a few guys play in the basement. Right. Or unless but, it's like a child actor. And then it's right. like, it's like I was a child actor as a musician. I was literally out of, before I even knew what I, like people say like, how long have you been playing drums? And it's like back farther than I can remember. I can't remember before that, unless it's like first flashes of right. like memory. I can't remember a time where I wasn't playing drums because that early development stage, I was already playing drums. And I wasn't just playing drums. I was playing drums with people making music and actually negotiating deals and playing gigs for pay. Granted, it was like two bucks. I think my dad still has the same first $2 I ever did for like right. a private party in a basement. But we would play anywhere. And, uh, you know, we had four guys who were out there. We, I have posters. We had drum head logo on the bass drum and, um, we were not messing around. So, you know, we're coming through the back door and setting up and, you know, getting there early and sound checking. We rent a light show and cause there were older bands cause it was a big college town or three colleges in my town. So all the older brothers of these guys were playing gigs, making big bucks at big bars or at big college shows or beer blasts, frat houses. So we had this blueprint to look at these guys and go, okay, that's how it's done. We're just going to do it on our level. And they helped us. They supported us. We knew we needed a PA. We knew we needed good amps. We knew we needed good gear. I had to change my drum heads. I had to know how to do a drum solo. You know, there were all those things. We needed a light show. And the more of that stuff you got together, the more you'd work and the more chicks and you know, all that fell together, you know? Now, did you, did you start playing bars at like 13? I played my first bar, yeah, at 13. Now, how does that work? Because I mean, did you, I mean, because I know what I used to stand up in Philadelphia yeah. and there was this kid, Ronnie Long. He was 16. And he would sit there and back then the comedy clubs, even though they served liquor, but we would just walk in and we're like, we're only like 23 or 24, you know, some of us are, some of them were 30 and we're like, what the hell is a 16 year old kid? But it's like, it was a comedy club sure. at a bar. I mean, how did, did you have to sneak in or did no, they let you No, I went or? with my parents at first. My parents brought me into the first gig and we, you know, we, we obviously it was very clear you weren't allowed to drink and I would play gigs and eventually, you know, it was a college band and eventually I was just playing enough gigs where I knew the bar owner. It was it was the hot bar, you know. It wasn't a giant bar, but it was it was the hot bar where all the bands from would come out in from out of town and play. And so we would work there. So I eventually got to know these guys to the point where I would just walk in, you know. I knew all the door people, and I would walk in. And eventually, as I got older, as I got like 15, 16, you know, I was like dating an older chick, and I had a leather old Harley jacket my mom had, like a real old Harley jacket from the 60s that had a, a side pocket that was ripped, so I could fit like a six pack of beer cans in the pocket that would just <laughs> fall into the jacket. <laughs> So I had it all dialed in. I'd walk in with some hot, you know, 20, 21 year old chick. I'd walk right in. They wouldn't even ID me because they just assumed that I was meant to be there because I'd been playing there a bunch. And then I'd go into the bathroom and pound a beer and then come out, you know, and be fine and drink a water or a Coke. And so nobody ever saw. Yeah. So I had a, I had a little racket I got going later. I kind of abused it, but, but yeah, so I, that was not a weird thing at all. You know, when I was a senior in high school, I was playing with all seniors in college, a bunch of bands and they were working like crazy and were making good money recording, did a bunch of recording around that time. So I was negotiating contracts while, when I was like 15 or 16 and half the stuff I was doing with other high schools, half the stuff I was doing is actually all once, you know, by the time I was like got to college, I had done half of what I would be doing in my life. When I got back into rock and roll after school, I was literally like, I've already done all this shit. Now, why did you choose to go to college? I mean, you had this thing going. Does it, I mean, you you had you wanted to be a drummer, right? And you went to it's, it was a very good musical school, right? Yeah, I went to a couple. So what made you to sit there and say, you know what, I'm going to do this? Or did you, well, did your parents well, want you to go to school or is it yeah. something you wanted to do? No, I, both. I really wanted to. But at the end of the day, it was like, okay, you know, my dad's a professor. My stepfather was a professor. You know, I grew up in a very academic 
environment, you know, with a college, literally a stone's throw from my house. And so I watched and I, and how my teachers were college kids too. Cause I stayed with Peter Zeck when I was younger, but I started studying with all these other guys who were in college, grad students and whatever. And I just realized, you know, if I really want to be a great drummer, I can come, I've already got this rock and roll stuff. I had a good head start. So I thought I'm going to go look behind the curtain and really kick my own ass as a drummer and make sure that I've covered every possible thing I could. So it was kind of like, a, you know, I felt like I got time to go do this. And if it's five years of my life, then I'll come back and I'll rock again, you know. And, and of course, my parents were, you know, I mean, my father is very, you know, he has like three degrees and so and didn't pay for any of it. So there was like a level of if you're going to do this, you got to, you know, you should, you should go to college. You should be as good as you can be. And then you'll come out and you'll be still be a kid and you can, then you'll never wonder what it was like and you'll have that degree. So I did. And then I went to grad school as well. I went to grad school. And now grad school was in music. Yes. Okay. So, but now what, I mean, what does someone like you, of course, were going to be in a band and you wanted from, you're right. uh, But other people, when they go to grad school, for music, to some of them go into teaching, or what? What? What is most like your classmates? What? What were they going to pursue yeah, after grad school? Most of them were as a graduate. Yeah, they're going to teach. You're right. Yeah, yeah, they're going to get a doctorate. They're going to teach in a college level, or they're going to teach in high schools, or they're going to teach privately and whatever. You know, but they'll have that master's degree. You know, and um, so for me, you know, my father basically was like, you know, an undergraduate degree doesn't really mean anything, and he was right. You know, you're without a graduate, so you should go get this degree. And I got a scholarship to go to University of Miami, which is great. It was great, and that was the only way to do it. That's the other thing. My dad, you know, I, I love my dad, but he's you know tough love, and he's the artist, but he's the pragmatist. You know, he's a sculptor, and he's you know, but he also was a professor, and so there was that, you know, that artsy side and very creative, and yet also very pragmatic. Like if you're going to go into the arts, you better cover your ass because it's brutal. You know, so I had both those on each shoulder. You know, so I kind of for him and. You know, his basically was like, you know, go get your master's degree and I'll never bother you again. You know, you can go do whatever you want. Now, were you in when you were in school, were you still playing in bands at all? Or no, just... not that much. To be fair, I really immersed myself in the world of percussive, you know, the percussive arts, not drum set, not rock and roll, little lot, you know, drum set more and more. And I was playing in jazz bands, but I was literally trying to push myself to a, to another place and really get this experience that I thought would ultimately help my rock drumming and my, my career as a drummer because I wasn't sure which direction I would go and I figured the more I know the more diverse I can be and the more I'll work and I, I kind of that's kind of my mantra now you know I tell younger students you know the more diverse you are the more you can adapt and work and do other gigs and that's that's proved me that I, I that served me well I think it's weird it's weird you say that because I've gotten that from other guests who are drummers mm -hmm. like Lucky Lair played jazz mm -hmm. and then uh um uh, Johnny Vato mm -hmm. from Boingo Boingo, he was playing for like Helen Reddy's band. And you sure. sit there and you go, wow. So it's like, it's, it's such a, you, the trained, the trained drummer can play so much more that you're always going to be in demand. It's like when I did comedy, a good host, a good MC would always work because there wasn't a lot of good hosts. But if they say, hey, you know, I know you usually do this spot in the show, but can you come in and host? It's the same thing. Yeah, it's just more work. Right. So the, the trickle down that maybe somebody who's very, you know, they, they have a niche, they may only do some one thing really great and that can work for people, you know, or you get in one great band and all of a sudden who cares? You just do one thing and that's fine. For me, it was like there was a, it was kind of like a life challenge, you know, it was a goal. I wanted to be able to be as good as I could be and be able to do a bunch of different kinds of things and I get to do that, you know, and I have friends of mine who have landed that, that, that when basically I joke about calling it win the lottery and I don't mean that in a bad way. It's just, they won the lottery. They got that one gig with that killer songwriter or that big artist or that personality. And then they don't need another gig, but it's almost like golden handcuffs. A lot of those guys went through the same pace as I did and wish they could kind of spread their wings and show these other colors and do these other, other, you know, show this other side of their playing or, you know, extend that. And they're not able to. And it's just, you know, obviously it's great that they have a great gig for me. I've been lucky in that I've been able to do some gigs for three, four years, but generally, you know, a gig ends and I jump to another gig. And so I'm very, at least in that realm, it's a lot of work, but it's very satisfying that I've gotten to do a bunch of different things and be able to use that kind of, um, adapt. And I still want to do some more, you know, for me now, it's like, what's, what haven't I done? What's weird? You know, let's do a country gig or let's right. do some chick singer or let's do a Helen Reddy or a, some, you know, light, light girl singer yeah, or something. Anne Marie. I want to do some Anne Marie. Uh, I'd love I... to do Anne Marie. She ruled. But, you know, like, uh, you know, along those lines, like, you know, something that would be out of my 
what people would think I do, you know, maybe a jazz combo or something, something that would be completely unique than my niche, which is obviously rock and roll is what I'm known to do. But so that's, there's a challenge to, that I'm still kind of interested in. You know, I mean, I took a, I took a jazz lesson with Jeff Hamilton, who's probably one of the best. Yeah. You said that now. Now, how does, how does that happen? Like, like how do you, do you sit there and get a lesson with him? Does he know of your work? And then you say, and it's good that you're, you're still, you have all the training and we're going to talk about all the bands you've played with mm-hmm. but it's great that you're still eager and you're sitting because i could tell you're like oh it's a one a chance you know when you send me the message you know how did you how did that happen well basically you know i mean jeff hamilton is probably the best jazz drummer in my opinion one of the best you know traditional jazz drummers alive as far as musicality and technicality it's just you know technique and he's just a you know he's just a just a brilliant player and you could be you know practically deaf and and be able to recognize that you know the guy is just it's incredible his musicianship and uh I don't think there's any question about that. So, but I'm also a very good, big fan of, you know, I studied a lot of jazz. I studied a lot of big band. He played with Woody Herman and among, you know, Diana Krall and a million other artists, but he has his own group that's, you know, renowned, the Clayton Hamilton big band, you know? So anyway, I, you know, his brush playing, I'm very fascinated with the wire brush, with brushes, which is kind of a dying art form, you know? And uh, it's very, you know, so I, I, you know, he's probably the best, you know, in my opinion, he's probably the best overall brush player out there, I think. And, um, so I tra- started pursuing him to the point where I would like, you know, I'd literally just like approach him. I'd follow him into the bathroom at Nam, you know, and be, you know, in a stall with him, like saying, hey, you sure? You know, and he's like, oh, no, I'm not teaching or I'm not, you know, I think that's his, he doesn't teach very many people because I think he's so dedicated to the art and he is so busy. He's the fir- you know, first call guy. It's incredible. I'm so glad he works as much as he does because jazz, you know, isn't as popular as it once was, but he seems to have it all dialed in and he's like crazy. So anyway, all that said, it took a lot of attempts and I'm not really sure how I ended up getting, you know, I, I use the same com- drumstick brushes that he uses so maybe that came from the inside from our re- company regal tip or maybe it was i think pro drum shop i did a drum clinic and those stan and jerry from pro drum shop kind of saw me playing they were like wow we had no idea you played brushes when they flipped out and maybe they said to jeff hey you should check this kit whatever it was or maybe it was just me after a, a year and a half right it probably said well you know what this guy really wants to yeah you know play but it me. seemed like he kind of knew my thing and, and he's been very respectful as far as that goes but but i will say like today i left like feeling like i have no business playing brushes or jazz you know it's like and and i leave and you get depressed when you get that situation because some lessons are really great and you leave and it's like a high five and the other lessons you leave and you're like wow i gotta go back to the drawing board and 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 really it's those lessons where i leave going as much as I'm, I feel like I suck and I'm bummed. I know that I've. That's what I'm there for is to get my ass kicked and go. Wow, I have all this to learn, and I'm so far away from that. And that's where it's. I think that's way more exciting than going. I sound great. You know? Right, right. High five. You know, and like I'm not there for that. So that's how it was. But yeah, I had to switch lessons, switch scheduling around because he is a busy guy, and I'm about to leave for six weeks on tour. So it's like I'd like to get that in my hands. So when I'm in a hotel room or I'm at a sound check and I've got some time, I'm gonna shed brushes until I can maybe play with some people when I get back, you know? Now, when you get out of college, mm-hmm. uh, you start playing with Julian Hatfield, is it? Yeah, that happened while I was in college. Okay, so now that, what, what happened with that? That's bizarre. I was basically, I went home for Christmas, uh, Christmas break, uh, my second year of graduate school. And, and I had gone to University of North Texas for undergrad for music education, which was a very hard school. It was basically, um, what's the movie? Um, um Whiplash. Yeah, it's basically Whiplash. I went to undergrad was Whiplash. No joke. And anybody I went to school with who was there, and there were a bunch of great drummers, Jim Riley from the Rascal Flats, Keith Carlock from Steely Dan and Toto, John Mayer, um, Blair Sinta, who plays with Melissa Etheridge. I mean, there's a million drummers who went to North Texas. I'm, I know I'm forgetting a bunch. And um, those guys all know what I'm talking we, we all went there. And it was like, it was kind of like, like a Vietnam or, you know, like we talk about it together, how it was brutal. It was tough love, you know? So, and it was a lot of work. You were just overworked. They overwhelmed you there and, and it wasn't pretty, but I, I think there was, there was a, there was a purpose. So by the time I got to Miami, Miami was like a cakewalk. It was like a country club. And so as a grad student there, as a performance major, it was, it was easy. So I had all my coursework done luckily by my beginning of by the by the end of my my third semester it's a, it's a two-year program and so i went home for christmas and a guy who was in a band that got signed to columbia who was from my hometown who always i guess saw me play around town like my playing said dude there's a rock bunch of rock bands there's a movement going on in boston this is post nirvana 1994 um and everyone's getting signed and boston is a super hotbed and uh, he's like, there's a bunch of bands and there's not enough great drummers. And the way you play, now, you know, he's like, would be perfect for these bands. Now, mind you, he hadn't seen me play in seven years. 
seven years. Last time he saw me play was at some right. beer blast and I was like 16, 17. I had gone through all this college and I hadn't really played rock drums uh, at all, you know, just jazz or fusion or whatever, you know. And so he recommended me to two different managers who both, you know, on his recommendation, um, agreed to f- fly me up. So I flew up and in a weekend I auditioned for Tracy Bonham, who ended up having a giant hit single in 96 or 7. And then uh, and then Julianne Hatfield, who was huge and had a giant a record coming out on Atlantic at that time. And she was poised to really be a big deal and was on the cover of a bunch of teen magazines, even though she wasn't a teen. But she was cool, you know. And um, yeah, I got the gig. I got the gig, which was bizarre. And what's really funny is one of the bands that they were like, listen to this drummer. If you can play like this drummer, you'll get a ton of gigs. And his name was Stacy Jones. And Stacy Jones was in a band called Letters to Cleo. And Letters to Cleo was started by Abel, with the drummer Abel Boreal, who plays with Paul McCartney. Okay. And went to Berkeley. And they were kind of a Berkeley offshoot band. And then the drummer Stacy Jones now is Miley Cyrus's music director, drummer, and one of my dear friends. So when I went up there, I, when I first got this record, Letters to Cleo, and I listened to it, it was like, well, I eventually joined Letters to Cleo later. Um, when I heard it, I went, oh yeah, this makes perfect sense. I play drums just like this guy. And he's one of my, you know, dearest friends. And so it's funny, you know, um, yeah. So that, that, that was like, well, I can do this. And I did. So I got the gig and then literally I had to go to my professors and say, Hey, I know I'm on a graduate assistant chip and you're paying me. And part of the deal is I graduate and all I have left is a master's recital, like a performance, like timpani and percussion and marimba. And so basically I, um, yeah, I, I basically just said, I'll come back and do it when I can. And I left on the road with Juliana. And before I, and within weeks, I was playing in London on a TV show called The Word, which was like an estimated like 6 million viewers after the pub closed. And so that was bizarre. And then I was playing on Conan O'Brien. And it was like a big party back at college where all my friends were watching me play on Conan O'Brien that night, you know, like a big giant party. So it was just surreal, you know? It's just, yeah, I mean, it's just crazy because you're going, you're, as I said, you have to do this thing with a Tim Tom and all that yeah, stuff. Timpani, and, yeah. and then you, but then you're actually at the time that you're on the road and you're back playing rock and uh, roll yeah. within minutes. Yeah. It was very strange. And it took, I had to de-learn a lot of the music you get in that music school headspace. Now, did you ever go back to graduate? I did. Okay. Yeah. Now, how long did you play with Juliana? Juliana was very short. She kind of got like, went, went like, uh, had a few little mental issues and went kind of crazy and, um, took a few months off when the tour was only going to be a certain amount of months. And then when she did get back together, she decided that to be stable, she needed to get back to her old band. So basically I ended up, um, I ended up getting called by another buddy of mine who had seen me play and was like, oh, you're not doing Juliana? Well, come on in. I just got a publishing deal with Sony and we ended up signing to A&M Records with a band called Jack Drag that was kind of sounded like Beck. And around that time I was playing and I actually, bizarrely, uh, that band Vertical Horizon who ended up having like a number one hit saw me that Matt Scannell saw me play on Conan O'Brien and like my playing and actually offered me. So he saw you playing with Juliana Hatfield on Conan O'Brien on TV, just by chance. And I was that random. And I ran into him at a, at a, at a sound check. And one of the guys was from North Texas. He's like, Oh, that's the guy you like. And he was like, what? And then he literally begged me to do the gig. It's bizarre, you know? And I turned it down even though I knew they were going to be huge and they had a number one hit a couple of years later, I recommended the drummer who's now playing with the Doobie brothers and is killing it. But, um, so that worked out well for him. But, uh, you know, so there was a bunch of stuff going on. I am getting the gig with letters to Cleo. We went out with a band called our lady peace who had a huge hit in 97, a couple of huge hits, Canadian man and Everclear who were on their first big headlining tour. So it was like, there's a lot going on. I, I did a lot of freelance and, you know, I had, I signed a record deal. I kind of got the, you know, I did a lot of things I always wanted to do. Signed a publishing deal, record deal with my band. We toured around in vans playing with all these cool bands from like Mike Watt to the Lemonheads. To- what was that like? I mean, cause that's like, and all those, both those bands are, you mentioned are great. What's it like? I mean, doing the van, cause I'd noticed in comedy that's coming back now, a lot of uh, younger comics are just going out and booking not to comedy clubs at different gigs. But what's it like, I mean, when you went on tour with Julian Hatfield and you're doing Letterman and stuff like that. That's tour bus. Yeah. That's tour bus. Yeah. But now you're going back. Now oh, you're, yeah. Now what is that like? I mean, is it just... It was. It sucked. It was terrible. And some of the bands were big. Some of the bands were like better than Ezra or bands that were big that had a tour bus. And Jack Drag was just an indie band. We were, I mean, we were a smaller band. We were signed to A&M. We had a great record deal, but we didn't have any radio play or anything. So we were just fighting it out for like a year and a half or, you know, two years. And it sucked. You know, you're, you're having to get up. You have to like, you know, as soon as you're finished, you have to tear all your own shit down. You have to race to the hotel, sleep as quick, you know, get as much sleep as you can, which of course you're amped and wired after a show. So you can't sleep that much. Then, you know, you fit three guys into a hotel room. 
it was all that shit that you hear about, you know, earning your stripes. We earned it, you know, and then some crappy cheap hotel or, you know, and then you wake up crack of dawn because they're on a tour bus that's already on the road and they're right. sleeping while they're driving. You have to catch up to be able to be the first band on. So it's, it's, it sucks, you know, it sucks, but it was cool. And it was, for me, it was exciting because, you know, I'm on the road and we're playing, we're getting to actually see the world was once you get in a tour bus, you literally sleep while you travel, you know, so you don't see anything anymore. So when that, when that ends, that tour. That what, ends, I decided I'm going to move to LA. We made a record in LA for him and I thought I got to move to LA. This is where it's happening. Boston's great, but I've done a ton of stuff. I, I want to be the small fish. And so I moved to LA. Where did you, where was your first place? I always, cause everyone, everyone who moves to LA. I actually met a girl. This is so true, but I met a girl kind of had a one night stand, I guess you could say. And she lived in LA and she was like, uh, she was in Boston when I met her and, she, and I said, I'm moving to LA. And she said, well, I don't believe it. Nobody moves to LA and you know, tons of cool people. So if you move, maybe all my friends from LA will move. True story. And I did move and she she let me sleep on her couch for like a month and I finally bought a car and I ended up my buddy, the same guy who recommended me to Juliana Hatfield, was now out here writing and writing for different movies and things. And he was dear friends with Adam Duritz from the Counting Crows. So he lived with Adam in this huge giant mansion and you know, Adam had like ten roommates, you know, at the time, like he was just that dude, you know, rich guy with all his buddies living in this giant mansion. And so I would go up there for movie night. I didn't know anybody here except him. And so I got to know Adam and Adam was cool. And I said, oh yeah, I'm looking for a roommate. And he said, oh, this girl's from New Orleans. She's cool. She's looking, she's got a room for rent. It was pretty cheap. And I thought, okay, sure. And I moved in with this girl I didn't know. And she was fine, a little nuts, but we all were back then. It was one big party about 15 years ago. And, and I just literally like saved all my money knowing that I wanted to buy a house and have a, you know, have that stability. That was part of the big plan of, if I'm going to do this, I got to have the stability of knowing I can live somewhere and it's not going to, you know, I can have that living expense covered. So I just lived like super inexpensively and, you know, and I saved all my money and I ended up buying a house a couple of years later in the Valley and I'm still in it 12 years later. So that was a, that discipline, I guess, you know. Then when you're in LA, who did you start playing for that? Did you, was it because you're new, you're new to the scene. I mean, people in Boston, as you said, you're a big fish. And now you said you're a small fish. And so, and there's so many more people out here who want to drum. There's probably so many really good drummers. Where do you start to try to get a new job? Well, I came out here and I was just meeting people and just, you know, whatever. And all of a sudden, you know, there was a whole network of college, you know, I didn't realize, oh yeah, I met one guy from North Texas. The next thing I knew, I knew 50. Okay. So that helped, but it didn't help that much. But I had, right before I moved to LA, I did a tour with an artist named Ben Lee, who was signed at a young age, Australian artist to the Beastie Boys label and had a couple of really cool songs and had a really hip uh, thing going. So I flew to Australia, did an Australia tour with him, big festivals, which was totally eye-opening and awesome. What is that like when you say big festival? What is it like playing for, because especially just like a year and a half before you were playing oh, yeah. in a van, now you're playing in front of what, 50,000, Yeah, 000. it was that big. It was like Foo Fighters, Garbage offspring and this is like 1999 what's that like playing when you probably you can't see how far back the people go yeah and the music i mean has to be they have to pump it out so loud even though that you probably don't hear it as much how is i mean does that affect you when you're drumming oh of course i mean does it and just the energy must just be yeah. it's insane just to instead of just that you're used to playing in a bar then all of a sudden you know you're playing in a tour for the year and a half then you have just huge speakers i mean does it just is it surreal yeah it's bizarre you get used to it i mean i will say the weirdest is when i come home to practice i'm like where's all the sound you know what i mean you get used to all that beautiful sound you know and you have in-ear monitors so everything is kind of contained but there is that crazy energy and depending on what gig you're doing like manson when i toured with manson you know some of the shows in russia like you'd literally like I, i've never felt that kind of intensity maybe in chile with chris cornell there was a couple of shows where it felt like you could literally cut the air with the excitement, you know, they cut the excitement, you know, and it was just, it was that intense, you know, and there's footage, there's great footage of Chris Cornell in Argentina with probably about 30 to 50,000 people. You can see the crowd and it's, you can tell, you can feel the intensity. Well, it's that. amazing how big these guys, like Gilby Clark had said when he played in Chile and Argentina, how big, I mean, like the guitar guys, I mean, like Cornell, they're, they're so demigods. They're just huge. He's like, he's like, he goes, I was at the hotel and everyone's like, Gilby, he's like, it was amazing. It's just, why do you think that is? I think that there's certain cultures that really, really appreciate it. And they appreciate the music first, which I think is great. And and there are certain cultures, and I can list them pretty easily, but they, they really appreciate the music, but they also 
really respect the artist. And it's almost like, you know, if you really respected a baseball team or something. But it seems like in South America, for sure, that's pretty broad, but definitely Chile, Argentina, you know, um, I'm trying to think of other like, you know, Ecuador I've played, other places. I'm, I'm missing a bunch. But down uh, Brazil, for sure, you know, um, they just they really, you know, they're really sweet, respectful. They know everything about you, even if you're the side man, you know, and they're very kind, but they're also ravenous. To like, they want an autograph, and they'll they'll be out, they'll stay outside of your hotel for hour, you know, all day, and then they'll be there the next day when you wake up, when you come home late at night, they're there. When you come out, and they they give you gifts, and they're very thankful, and they're the first guy you see their face front row at every show. There's a certain that's that. There's that's also in Russia, for sure, on Ukraine and uh, um, Japan. I would say those three for sure. Those kind of demographics. Demographics, geographic, all areas. But yeah, the, they they really love music. They love the art. They love the music. They love it. They love to participate, and they they really respect the artist. But also, they come back. You know what I mean? They'll be with your fans forever. So that's why those crowds get bigger and bigger and bigger. That's crazy. So now after Bentley, after Australia. So I moved to LA. We do a tour. We do a tour with Luscious Jackson all over the U.S. We end. I moved to Boston. So I moved to LA with this girl. I stay at her couch. I move into the place, and then I end up meeting through Ben Lee, uh, through the Ben Lee connection and Jack Drag. I meet this guy Jason Faulkner, who was like a really hip guy who who was in Jellyfish and a bunch of bands and super hip guy in town. And he was doing a lot of soundtracks and he played with Beck. And I meet Jason, and I end up finishing up his tour for a record called Can You Still Feel, I think. And that was amazing because instantly in L.A., Jason Faulkner was like the guy. He okay. could play every instrument, and I was just suddenly – we hit it off as buddies, and then I played drums with him, and he, he – you know, never – we never looked back. We did a bunch of shows together and became really good friends. I recorded on some stuff on a, for, for a record. And that really put me in with like a whole other echelon of like when I went to auditions, I got in with like these different agents in town. And when I put that name on there, that really broke the ice for a lot of people. So that was like the it name at the time. Yeah, at the time. Yeah. And, you know, so then I ended up auditioning for a bunch of bands, a bunch of bands I didn't get, like a band called Lifehouse that had the number one okay. single. And that was the thing where I, Jason had recommended me to this agent. The agent called me, the number the phone it was before like caller id and uh and the uh the number on my answering machine my gave me i give my house number um it cut off i didn't get the number and i didn't know and it turned out it was that band lifehouse who had like the number one single of 2000 right. yeah and i would have gotten like if i'd gone down there and i supposedly the drummer was was like a student who got the gig you know so i already had all this experience it's a good chance i would have gotten the gig there was only like two guys auditioning and um yeah it ended up being the biggest like within 3 months i could have been playing in the biggest Band, you know, band with the biggest song of the year. You know, there were a little, lot of li little near misses with like things like that. And uh, eventually, I got a call from. Uh, I was doing a lot of freelance. I had a couple bands that were my bands. I, I recorded with a band called the Campfire Girls on Interscope, and then I did a uh, band that was my band. I got signed to Maverick called Monterey. That was produced by this. It was the signed by Chris Robinson from the Black Crows. Got them a publishing deal, and then they we, we did the record. It was produced by the brothers from uh, Stone Temple Pilots. Now. Were you writing music? I was. Okay, so yeah. you're, but you were playing drums. I was playing drums. I was writing, you know, shabbily on guitar. But I can't. I probably wrote at least a third of that record, and uh, it was just great experience. I, I got to meet these the DeLeo brothers, and they I did a bunch of work with those brothers and stuff, and got to work with different artists with them. And and then I got a call from my band, my buddies who were in a band called American Hi-Fi, which is actually Stacy, who was in Letters to Cleo I mentioned earlier. He was now the front man of that band, and they had a big hit. Um, and they, you know, they'd always said, if our drummer can't do it, you're the next guy. And the drummer couldn't do it. He was getting married and decided he was going to have a family. So next thing you know, I was in American Hi-Fi and we toured all over the world with like bands like Bowling for Soup and Butch Walker. And, um, we went all over the U S and all over the UK and all over Japan. And we did that a bunch for a couple of years. And, um, then I came home and I ended up starting a musical. I got called by a guy, my, the same guy who got me the first audition, really. This guy who got me my roommate, too, through Adam Durr. It's Dave Gibbs. Um, and he called me and he was starting a musical and he asked if I would help him arrange the music. You know? Now, had you, did you have experience in that kind of arrangement? Not really. But what's funny is when I was in high school, I was like the crack drummer who could read 
you know, I could sight read. So I got, I would play all the musicals, not just in my town, but all these local towns. So, um, like I was doing Greece in my town, but I was doing three other Greeces. You okay. Know I mean, in other places that I, in other towns, I didn't even know anybody. And I was like, cause I could read and they needed a good drummer. And what's funny is Dave Gibbs, this same guitarist was actually playing guitar in the, in, in the, uh, production of Greece when we were in high school. Pretty weird. And uh, we started this, we started this, we did production. We'd actually already worked on Josie and the Pussycats, that movie. We did that soundtrack together. Um, and um, when that record went gold, it was kind of cool. So we worked well together as far as arranging. He would pay, say, here's the part I have, and I would come in and come with the drum parts. Okay, so you would you would have an idea for the guitars, then you would, you would do the drum part. I would do the drum part, and we'd kind of like hash it out, and then we'd record it really quick, and we'd have like a version, okay. you know, like a demo. And then from there, we would, you know, that, that that's a place to start. So it just was just me and him. And eventually, these was this was easy because we were literally just arranging like famous songs like Foreigner or Asia. And basically, the, the for for this for these dancers to work on this, we were doing basically what was called a preview, where you do an hour long production of this musical, you know, to be. And if the producers liked it, they would um, buy into it and you know decide to invest, and then they would turn it into a two movement, two act, you know musical. And so we did maybe about six weeks of this, you know, maybe, I don't know, three or four shows a week and they were all sold out. And it was a couple of celebrities, Chris Hardwick and a couple of this other, was out here. Yeah. It was at King King on Hollywood. Anyway, uh, the, we ended rap party, all good producers were found and they loved it. And so they're like, yeah, it's going to, it's a go. So within like two months they had written the second act and we were going to, we started a huge production in Hollywood and it was sold out for about two solid months. And that was a musical called rock of ages. Right. Yeah. Which ended up being, you know, we made a movie out of it and it was like one of the longest running shows on Broadway. So you were an original score in that. I was in a, I was an original cast member basically. Okay. Yeah. And now did you, did you go to New York and play? No, I did not. Cause I was busy working and that kind of came, I was, I got my career started to take off, you know, for uh, while I was in that, I got called by a, someone to play with a Rembrandt's that band because yeah. Friends well, was ending. It's funny, everyone remembers the song from Friends. Yeah, but they had, I remember they had another hit, song. they had a bunch of great I, songs because I remember I had when I lived in San Diego, yeah, I went to like a swap meet and I bought like a five bucks. The, the cool t-shirts and it was a Rembrandt shirt yeah. and I still remember that was like God, what, 15, 16 years no, ago no they've been a band forever a lot of people don't know but the Rembrandts were really cool back in like the late yeah, 70s I remember they, shared, they, they, had they shared a rehearsal room with Quiet Riot Okay, and like Phil gave like uh Randy Rhodes, like guitar lessons, you know what I mean? It's like, these guys were cool dudes, you know? They just ended up writing a super cheesy pop song that made millions of dollars for a big show. And uh, so I went out with them at the, it was like the end of Friends and someone had recommended me. We went out and that was short-lived because I got a call from Smash Mouth and I auditioned for them and got that gig. And so that that pulled me away from Rock of Ages at the very tail end of it. So Rock of Ages probably still had another like month to go and I bailed, I had to bail. You know, I got a sub and said, thanks guys, I got to go do this, you know, as part of my rock and roll fantasy, you know? And, uh, Rock of Ages went on to to open in Vegas maybe about three months later and it lasted like three months. You know, it just didn't, the humor was over everybody's heads. It was really too smart. And they ended up rewriting it, working it. It was off Broadway for a few years and then all of a sudden it was, it was a opening night. They were going to be on Broadway. And I actually, to be fair, I was in, Dave called me. He said, where are you right now? I said, I'm in New York. He's like, you're kidding. This is at like five o'clock. He said, where are you? I said, I'm at the Dream Hotel and, you know, right in, in, uh, you know, right in uh, I'm what, uh, Midtown. Yeah, right in Midtown, whatever. I'm facing it, but near Broadway. You know, and uh, he um, he's like, dude, opening night is tonight. He's like, I can save you a seat. Can you be here in like like a, like an hour? I was like, dude, I can be there in 15 minutes. I literally walked down the street and I sat and watched opening night with Janet Billig, who is the, one of the managers and producers. And actually, Janet Billig managed Jack Drag, my first band. Okay. She was also Chris or she was also Kurt Cobain's tour manager and and. Uh, and was the president of Atlantic Records. So there's a new documentary, and in it, he, Kurt says when they're doing the unplug, he says, "Yeah, can you make sure the front rows? Can you make sure Janet?" And I just we, watched that documentary. Yeah, that's, that's Janet Billig. Okay. So Janet's affiliated with that, and she's so we. It's weird how we've kind of you know, we've we've kind of crossed paths, and she's wonderful. And so anyway, I sat literally next to Janet Billig and Dave Gibbs, and we watched the opening night of Rock of Ages. It was just like it was meant to be. It was kind of incredible to watch. That's it. yeah, and it had such a long run, and it became a movie, and it's yeah. just, it's a known play. I mean, that's just so cool. So after the Rembrandt, well, I, know, I know when did you. Uh, start playing well I know you played with the Marilyn Manson and I know you played with the Stooges too no it was uh, the New York Dolls, New York Dolls yeah. how did uh, how did the Marilyn Manson thing come about um, basically I just finished the New York Dolls we did like a tour with Motley Crue and Poison for the summer yeah. how did the New York Dolls come about then? well I mean, that's that's bizarre I'm a huge New York Dolls fan okay. now 
especially. I love the early stuff. But I, now I think they sound like the Stones more than the Stones do, you know, or they did. You know, I don't think the Dolls are even in existence. I think David's back doing his own thing in New York. And I think that, that I kind of rode the last wave, which is fine. You know, some things can only go so far, you know. But they had a good run. And my buddy Brian Delaney, who was a North Texas guy, was a jazz drummer. Um, David was doing this lounge stuff. And, da- and David was like, hey, I got a, I think my rock band's coming back together. You want to play some drums? And Brian just became a rock drummer and ended up playing on like three records. And I would go see them wherever I could. I was very busy with Chris Cornell and he would come see my shows. And I just said, hey, man, if this ever opens up, I would love to play with this band for a run, you know, even if it was a, a one game. Well, sure enough, he just, you know, he had a bunch of other stuff happening and he was going to have a baby and he said, dude, it's all yours. And um, literally I was with Foreigner and I was on tour with Foreigner for about a year. And as soon as Foreigner ended, um, Foreigner ended uh, on like a Thursday, I came around on a Sunday. I came home and on Tuesday I got a call like, hey. The dolls are, you know, I put your name in the hat for the dolls. It's yours if you want it. It wasn't that easy. I had to jump through a bunch of hoops. But anyway, long story short is uh, that's how I got the gig. And I flew out and, and having not met any of them, it was David Johansson and Sylvain Sylvain from the dolls, original, the only two surviving members. And then it was Kenny Aronson who played with everybody from Billy Idol to Derringer to Bob Dylan and uh, and Earl Slick, who was Bowie's guitarist, you know, okay. and David Live and Diamond Dogs. And so, you know, royalty, really. And they were all easily 20-something years older than me. So it was kind of like rock school, you know, punk rock school and Staten Island and all New Yorkers. So I made sure when I got the call, I said, make sure they know I'm from New York, even though I live in L.A. You know, I don't want them to give the gig to somebody because they're from New York or New Yorker. You know, I'm a New Yorker. Let's get that clear, you know, because these dudes are like, you know, it's a gang. It's not a band. It's like a gang. And they're right. still like that, you know, but they're sweet. And it is like one of the coolest things I've ever done. I'll, I'll ever do. You know, when I hear the New York Dolls in like Japan, it's like it's like a it's like family. You know, and I hear that on the radio. It's like a really warm. I, I had such a great experience with those guys. They were so cool. And it was it was he- the heaviest thing I'll ever do. Well, you said Chris Cornell. Now, how did that happen? Chris Cornell came out of I was I was on tour with Smash Mouth. I was on the road with them for about a year, and I get a call from a agent, an agent who books auditions. And I had heard that Chris Cornell was auditioning guitarists and drummers and bass players, and it was like months. For months, he was auditioning these guys. Like I remember hearing about guys going in. It was like literally like six weeks or like a month at least. That's a long time. Usually you go in for a weekend, you do callbacks the next day and it's done. This was like a long time. And I got a call from him. He said, hey, you know, I ran him at a pizza joint, you know, and uh, and he said, uh, how you doing? Oh, Smash, or Smash Mouth, great. It's good for you. Whatever, you know, high five. And uh, he called me a few days later and he said, hey, I know you've got Smash Mouth and I know you're not going to leave that gig because I know it's a good paying gig and they treat you well, but would you be interested in doing me a favor? And I was like, okay. And he said, would you mind coming down and just auditioning for Chris Cornell? You got to learn five songs. He doesn't want to hear any of the drummers he's heard. He, he had like 25 drummers come down. He's got two guitarists he's, he's, he's digging and he's got two bass players. So really it's, we're down to the final callbacks and I don't want to send anybody else in there and I can't think of anybody who would be better for the gig than you. So he's like, you'll make me look really good if you can at least get the gig and then just turn it down, you know? What's the harm, right? And I was like, he's like, oh, he's got a drummer who's in Israel right now um, who had played on the record, but he was in Israel for like the summer. And he said he can work, but he he isn't he isn't he doesn't he's not the guy, but he could do it if he had to. So would you come in and so I went in, I learned the five songs, and this was like at like six. I had to learn all the songs. I got the music at like eight, and I was up to like two learning these crazy Soundgarden, like Soup Spoon Man, and these really weird Soundgarden tunes. It was, it was kicked my ass, and I just went in the next day and and uh, we played through the tunes and. We played through them twice, you know, with ba- two, ba- two guitars, two bass players. And we finished. And I, by the time I got home, I got a call. And I was like, yeah, Chris, just you called. And you're the first guy he's offering the gig to. And he's not taking no for an answer. So you got to, you know, the management was willing to talk to you, but they want you to show up tomorrow and rehearse. So I had a gig that, this was on a Monday or, or Tuesday. And uh, I had a gig with Smash Mouth on a Saturday coming up. And so I said, okay, but I'm not taking the gig. I've got other stuff. And the management literally every night would call me and Chris would tell them to tell me something, you know, like tell him this career this is going to make his career and tell him. And, um, and then eventually we rehearsed and it was like, well, this is amazing. And he's an unbelievable singer and an unbelievable 
musician and great guy. And I was like, I, and this band was like shit hot, great band, Yogi Lana, Pete Thorne, Corey McCormick, who's out with um, Neil Young now. It was just all these killer young guns who were just firing on all pistons. And Cornell, like with a new leash on life post audio slave, free to do whatever he wanted. And uh, so it was like breathing fire. And I was like, I got to do this. So I, 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 politely, you know, politely, I, uh, I, I called each guy in Smash Mouth after the gig and said, Hey, I got to go do this, you know, knowing also it would go all over the world. And the, the contract was for like a year and a half already. And then it ended up being three solid years and two records. So it was incredible. And it was like the YouTube era. So I got tons of YouTube footage and I got to actually really play out. And a lot of times as a musician, as a drummer, you don't get to play out that much. You know what I mean? It's like if you worked up Shakespeare and you busted your ass working up Shakespeare, like so many good actors, and they never get to perform it. Right. right? And finally you get to go perform it and and with like the best cast. It's like that. It was that level. Like listening to a lion roar in your ears every night. So you played for three and a half years? Three years. Okay, yeah. three years. Okay, now, now how did Marilyn, Marilyn Manson was after? Well, so, how did Farner okay, happen? Okay, so, so, so basically I'll give you the quick lineage. That ended. Um, as that ended, I, I ended up playing with Vertical Horizon because Matt had okay. finally, finally come out. <laughs> it was, came out and saw me play on Rock of Ages and was like, I found you. I'm living in L.A. You're my drummer. You're playing on my next record. So I ended up playing on his record along with Neil Pert from Rush, who was a buddy of his. So that's bizarre. And I got to meet him and be on a record with Neil Pert, which is kind of of cool one of the big drum heroes of the of, of history and uh so that happened i did a short tour with vertical horizon and then i was playing tennis and i was playing tennis you know um which ended up destroying my right arm which for uh, like a year so don't play tennis if you don't have if you need your arms uh, and you're over 35 um but um anyway i uh I, the great thing about it is I was thinking, I want to play in a band that's established, has a big catalog, and isn't going anywhere. And uh, I started putting that out there, and I was playing tennis, and buddy was like, oh, we're going to do a – my buddy I play tennis with all the time was like, hey, we're going to do a doubles match. And the doubles match, one of the guys was a keyboard player from Foreigner. He was a keyboard player who I, all my friends knew. And we, you know, we just never met. We hit it off. And I said to him, hey, man, I just want you to know. If that gig ever opens up, I'd love to play in Foreigner. And ironically, the drummer, Brian Tissues, one of the best rock drummers out there who was doing the gig, I had met at Billy Idol about two years earlier. And I went up to him backstage at like the House of Blues LA and said, dude, you're just crushing it. And I've, always, you know, I've seen you play with a bunch of people and you're amazing. He was like, dude, I watch you on YouTube all the time. I'm so jealous and you sound great and Chris Cornell and blah, blah, blah. And if you ever need a sub. So we connected for a second. And that's how this business kind of happened. So anyway, um, I kept getting calls from Michael over like the course of like two months, the keyboard player. And, and, and every time he called, I think like, oh, this is the foreigner game. You'd be like, hey, you want to play tennis? You know, I was like, ah. Yeah. <laughs> and so uh, I was at NAM, and I was at this big lunch or big dinner for my symbol company and the phone rang and I was like, oh, this is the guy from foreigner. Maybe I get the gig. And I answered the phone. He's like, dude. Yeah, you know, we want to put your name in the hat. Brian's leaving, and he said you'd be a great. I mentioned you, and he said you'd be perfect. So, next thing you know, I fly out, I audition, I get the gig, I do a year and a half with the band, and it's awesome. Such um, great songs. Oh, I mean, it was amazing. I, mean, I remember when I was like graduated eighth grade, or one of them, I got the first Foreigner album, and I listened to that thing inside and out, and all that. When you listen to like. I put on the greatest since everyone's on. Every song is just great. Oh, they're amazing. And it was it was just great. Great band. I mean, it's all a new band. You know, it was really just Mick Jones was the only original member, but they were great. And, uh, you know, we play all these shows. We did a lot of Europe and a lot of, you know, it was, which was really fun and just big shows and giant. It was just great. So that was a really great experience. That gig ends up winding down. One of the guys who was the, one of the drummers who was on the early drummer came back and so that like i said that that literally days days later i got a call from the new york dolls and that happened so i went out that summer did motley crew and poison and new york dolls open which is kind of amazing tour i was a huge fan of both those bands right. as a kid and motley crew and obviously poison both owe everything to the new york dolls as do just about 90 percent of the punk bands and you know bands in the 70s for look or sound or both or attitude you know and so uh that was amazing and then we did a a europe run with alice cooper and that with with the dolls and that run halloween that ended around november and mid-december i got a call that manson was looking for a drummer through a girl who was production for foreigner who was i had known years prior was uh was production for manson so she was going to be tour manager so she called me and put my because i mentioned to her i'd love to do that gig someday just because i'd love to do any gig you know right and uh so I mentioned that, you know, these very, very, very gigs, you know. And so I mentioned that to her and she called me and I, I ended up getting on the phone with the manager. And next thing you know, I 
showed up and I got a call and he said, hey, come on in. You're going to play to an iPod. Manson's going to be there. And ironically, you know, he watched a couple of YouTubes beforehand, like, who is this guy? And and watched me do like some rudimental snare drum solo. So when I walked in, he's when I'm there, he's walking with like a big glass of absinthe in one hand and like a cheeseburger in the other. And he's like basically making some comment about how he dug my rudimental snare drum solo and how he was impressed by it. It's probably the nicest thing he probably said to me in the entire time I was with him. But um pretty funny that I would break the ice with Marilyn Manson over a rudimental right that's just YouTube. so random so anyway that went well and uh, I ended up getting that gig and I did play, ended up playing on that record with Johnny Depp actually at, like the last B-side you know the record was kind of done when I got there and and I went over to Johnny Depp's house one night with Manson and I bought him this really cool Warhol Polaroid camera for his birthday which was only a couple days after I got the gig Manson or Depp? Manson okay and he was like, you're coming with me. I want you to hang out. And uh, it was after rehearsal. And he was like, we're going to Johnny's house. I was like, okay, great. Whatever. This is bizarre. And bring, we'll bring this camera and you can show me how to work it. And so I took a bunch of Polaroids. So there's a bunch of evidence of these killer portraits of Johnny and Manson and me and Manson. It's just cool. You know, it's all documented. Very Warholian. You know, it was very like – and we recorded this uh, single that was a cover of You're So Vain. And that ended up being a B-side on the record. So I'm on a track. And Johnny had played the floor tom like a just a tribal thing. And then I play drums over it. So it's actually credited as drums, Johnny Depp, and, and me. <laughs> That's just so cool. But what was it like, though? What was uh, his crowd like? Because you're coming, you know, Foreigner, you're getting a, you're, you know, it's a classic rock crowd. New York, you know, the, the, the Dolls and the Motley Crue is more of the metal crowd. Mm-hmm. Now you're going to a crowd that's completely, I, yeah. mean, I mean, you can't be further away from Farner yeah. to Marilyn Manson. What's that like as a performer? Do you notice the crowd's different? Or is it, it was just basically a- like, put it this way, the last tour I did with Alice Cooper and the New York Dolls was a Halloween tour. Basically, and the joke was every day is Halloween, you know, because everywhere we played in the UK, it was a UK tour and they just got, the UK just kind of got Halloween in the last like 10 years, you know what I mean? Right. You know, and so they're just like all into dressing up and everybody in the crowd is like completely, and basically it was just a continuation of that. Basically with Manson, every day was Halloween. You'd be in like, I'd be hanging out and I'd be, you know, we wore makeup, I wore makeup, like face paint and I had like wings and all black shit, it didn't matter. He basically kept us all in the dark anyway. It was just spotlight on him. He's, that's it, you know, total, you know, that's how he rolls. It's all about him. So, which is funny, but who cares? Whatever. God bless him. I love the dude, you know, but, um, so I'm sitting in like new, like long Island, you know what I mean? We're playing this like fancy big club and I'm in long Island, you know, some wealthy town and, and I'm, you know, having a coffee like a few hours before the show, just kind of hiding out. And all of a sudden it's like this, this like dawn of the dead start arriving down the streets, like, you know, sending on this beautiful, you know, Long Island town of like dudes with like swastikas on their forehead and like zombies and like blood coming out of their mouths or chicks with like, you know, barely anything on like a G string and like boots up to their, over their knees and, you know, their hair teased and green. And it was like, it was just amazing. Like, it was like, oh, my people have arrived, you know, here they come, you know, it's like, these are my people, you know? So it was just, it was entertaining to say the least. They were all sweet. His fans were great and he's great with his fans too it was a good it's a good rapport you know they're good fans they're creepy looking people like oh i don't want to can i get backstage i was like trust me the safest you will be is in the crowd because they're all dweeby goths right and the place you (laughs) last place you want to be is backstage where manson's throwing bottles and glasses shattering and he's tearing tvs off the wall you don't want to be anywhere near backstage if you're worried for your health the safest place you can be is amongst the fans that's funny now you said you're going on tour for six uh, weeks yeah so manson ended um after two years which was a long run for him and i literally had gotten a call the year before from smash mouth who i'd played with as i mentioned and they were doing a 20-year anniversary and they were like we're going on a big tour with sugar ray and you know a bunch of gin blossom big 90s thing and we want you to be part of it it's our first big tour in a long time I said, well, you know, I can't do I can't do June or whatever because I'm going to be finishing up because actually Manson did Alice Cooper as well. So we did Alice Cooper with Manson, which was the final tour. And they said, well, how about this? What if we have a guy who can sub in the meantime? You know, we'll get a guy who will play drums. And when you're ready, you know, you come on out. We'll work out perfect. So I ended up coming out and uh, – and I think that drummer actually had to go do something else anyway. So I just – I slid in. You know, I literally finished a tour and I had a week off to go home and learn the music. And they gave me a week off and I literally was right back on the road and with man with Smash Mouth literally a week later. And uh, it's been two years. It will be two years coming up. And now that's 
you're going out with them and starting in. Yes. And now we I, did another tour last summer and we're doing this. Uh, this will be my third tour with them, uh, doing a summer run. And we do, we're doing a tour with a bit with uh, toad, the wet sprocket and tonic. I know some guys in tonic, you know, both nineties, it's a nineties thing, you know? And what's cool is smash mouth has a new record coming out on Sony, which is pretty exciting. And it's a live record. So that's exciting because they've never had a live record that has, they have all these hits and they've never had a live record of those hits. So, you know, in this day, age like a record you know the record industry people are not that excited about new records by any band but a live record i think for these guys is like perfect because yeah, live records are great because yeah. it's the greatest hits and yeah, it puts exactly. everything together now now uh will you be with smash mouth when they play at the starlight bowl yes i will okay i may go to that you show. should definitely go and everybody should go just check it out it's, if you go to my website jasonstarter.com you can see the tour dates starlight bowl is such a great place to see a show i've never been there but i've heard about it it's small yeah we always get the grass tickets our friends have seats like the seat seats it's in burbank yeah it's right yeah. Up, i live in burbank it's i think right my 98 my year old grandmother mimi who who lives down the street from me is actually going to come to the yeah. show it's right up the hill and it's uh it's like 15 bucks to get in yeah and you can take all your own wine and beer and food and it's we have friends who have seats down, but we get to the cup on the grass, you put a blanket out, and you're sitting in the middle of the woods. And I love that. It's beautiful. And the, the it's where it's you can you can see a good show. And I'm actually glad that Smash Mouth is coming because they usually only have like one good band. Not I mean, they have one band it used to be better. Uh-huh. But like Smash Mouth's band you want to see. Like I saw Berlin there one year was cool. great. I saw Colin Hay. But then they have a bunch of cover bands. Uh-huh. And it's like, wait a second, it's such a great venue and yeah. it's only open for eight weeks. So that's cool. So that's exciting. We have a few minutes left. So now you do a lot of uh, uh you you teach a lot, right? I do. I do teach when I can. I do a lot of drum clinics more. Okay, I mean, now what's a drum clinic? A drum clinic, you know, basically I show up and I play, you know, excerpts or like, you know, I play along to tracks, usually minus the drums of, you know, I'll come out and play a foreigner song or a Manson song or a Smash Mouth song and I'll describe what I'm doing and the vibe and how I'm switching gears and and try to show a cross section of the kind of music I'm playing currently. And then I do a, you know, I do a little demonstration of maybe more technique like rudiments or I'll do a drum solo you know um, and I talk about technique and I talk about like most of what I talk about is the big picture getting gigs playing with feel playing music musically you know actually making music with other people and kind of helping us shape a song and things that a lot of younger drummers you know or a lot of drummers don't even really think about those things they think about they think they're thinking about the right things and they're really not listening and doing what they should be doing as a good supportive musician you know so uh, I try to address those things and you know answer basically all the questions I got asked I get asked on online from different you know aspiring drummers or professionals or whoever, you know, about how do you break into a scene? How do you keep working? How do you go from gig to gig? So I try to address things like that. I also do a lot of, I do a wire brush thing and kind of expose a lot of younger drummers to all these other styles and try to just, you know, in a positive note, say, Hey man, don't be afraid to get out of your comfort zone and, and grow, you know, and, and, you know, practice now while you can. And, you know, you got to be dedicated to it and just basically hopefully shave some years off the the time from things I've learned, shave some time off of them of like, you know, do's and don'ts and mistakes that maybe I made that they could avoid, you know? So it's fun. I do that. And I also have been doing a lecture at lecture series at colleges, basically discussing like rock and roll and the business of rock and roll and to, you know, music industry people, whether they be a clarinetist or whatever, they're involved in the industry. Cause I think that from playing with a bunch of different bands, I have a perspective of all these different ways of doing things. And it's a way of just addressing the big picture of pursuing a career in music, you know, and what that entails and answering questions. And, you know, I have a whole whole program I do, depending on the music program. And I've done them at like Syracuse University and University of Miami and uh, music, LA Music Academy and, and Musicians Institute. And it's kind of fun to get to bring that out. And, you know, actually the feedback is amazing and to do it to non-drummers, you know, so... Now, when Smash Mouth and that tour is done, now, do you know what you'll do then? I mean, I don't. I never really know right now. And that's that's kind of crazy, but it's also, I'm cool with that. You know, I mean, uh, I'm hoping, you know, who knows? You never know what's next. Uh, right now, I've been playing with those guys, and they're not really going away. They've got, you know, they've got that heritage like Foreigner. They've got the hits. Right. From corporate gigs to weddings to, you know, to tours. We go to Disney. You know, we do like a week at Disney every year. Because they're the Shrek, so that puts some, I mean. Yeah, that helps, but just... You know, just the fact that they have a bunch of big hits, you know, and so 
They're, you know, and they're a fun band. Yeah, it's fun. It's like a party band. It's a really good band. I actually am proud to say I actually produced the studio single for the record, which is a cover of the Kinks All Day and All the Night, um, which is total smash mouth. And then I actually ended up producing the whole live record, which is fun. So I never did that before. I've never been, you know, I've never labeled myself as a producer, but this just kind of happened. So it's kind of fun that I can actually say this Sony record I I produced it. So, so that's yeah, cool. Yeah. That's, that's, a, that's cool a new, it's it's a, a new hat. It's a new hat and it's just a great band and it's, you know, it's an honor to actually get to produce a band that be able to be affiliated as a producer for a band that had a great producer on all the records. There's always great producers. Eric Valentine, you know, who also did Third Eye Blind, produced their first few records, three records, maybe four. And, you know, the sound of those records is brilliant for sure and there's no question about that. When they came out, their sound was a big calling card. And so it's cool to be able to try to do, you know, and I think it turned out really well. I, I wish I had a, a the re- a record here, I could, we could, you could spin part of it. Or you know. actually, we got to wrap up. It's that's yeah. been an hour. So yeah, yeah sure. A, so now, how do people get in touch with you? Uh, basically, like jasonsutter.com. Obviously, I'm on Facebook, and you can write me. I have an artist page on Facebook, but but yeah, just jasonsutter.com, and you can write there for lessons. And I do Skype. I'm teaching a guy in Australia. I'm teaching a girl in Colorado and a kid in New York right now, as among many other places. It's crazy. And so I do Skype, and it's very easy, and I can do it from a hotel room or whatever. And you know, um, and you can write me there and say, hey, how do I do this? And what, you know, what are the rates and how does that work? But, or if I'm coming through town, if you see that I'm, you know, on your thing, you know, write me and maybe I can do a drum lesson at your studio in town or I look for me for doing drum clinics. I have that on my website as well. I want to thank you for coming on. It was great. Yeah, wonderful. Great. Thanks for uh, having P- me. Keeble, follow, uh, follow me on Twitter at Cooper Talk. Also go to my website, coopertalk.net. I have 381 episodes up there. Send me an email, cooper at coopertalk.net. And go to my other website, stopthesalt.com. It's my low-sodium cookbook. You know, I had my health problems. I'm all better now. So buy that, stopthesalt.com. It's 120 low-sodium recipes. Buy it through me, not Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Buy it through me. I will sign it for you, and I make more money. And it's all about me making more money. So, yeah, so also just check, go to jasonsutter.com. Follow me at Cooper Talk. I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guests. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins. You guys have a great weekend, and I'll talk to you next week.